Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Isaac Opper, an economist at the RAND Corporation and a professor of policy analysis at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Along with a couple of co-authors, Isaac recently published a paper called The Effect of Natural Disasters on Human Capital in the United States, which quantifies how natural disasters affect students' learning outcomes and their ability to earn income over the long term. When we think about the effects of natural disasters, we often think first about the damage to physical infrastructure and risks to human lives. But these events can upend people's lives in all sorts of other ways that can be just as, if not more, impactful than the physical damages that are easier to see and measure. I'll ask Isaac to help us understand this issue in today's episode. Stay with us. All right, Isaac Opper joining us from the Rand Corporation in sunny, beautiful Santa Monica, California. You were just making me and our producer Elizabeth jealous about the wonderful weather you're experiencing out there. Thank you for joining us on Resources Radio. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. So Isaac, um, we're going to talk about a really interesting paper that you recently published with co-authors on the effects of natural disasters on human capital. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in topics related to the environment, whether that interest started when you were a kid or whether it developed later in your life. So what drew you into this field? Yeah, so I think my interest goes way, way back and probably comes a lot from my grandfather, who was a forest ranger in Montana where I grew up. Uh, so I think in some sense, the, my kind of love of nature really came from the walks that I took with him as a kid. That interest, I think, really gained steam when I was about 10. And I read in the local paper that the fish in the creek that ran through our little town of Lewistown, Montana, uh, were contaminated with a chemical. And so you couldn't eat the fish because it was cancerous. So kind of naively, I decided that my fourth grade science project was going to be to find the source of this pollution. And we ended up taking a bunch of soil samples in the creek and with kind of used a lab to test them for this chemical called PCBs and actually managed to isolate it to a relatively small stretch of the stream. And so I think from that moment on, I was like utterly convinced that I was going to be an environmental scientist when I grew up. Fast forward 25 years. And of course, now I'm not an environmental scientist. I'm an economist, <laughs> not even really an environmental economist, but more a labor and education person. So, you know, life doesn't necessarily unfold the way you think it will as a fourth grader. But I think the interest in environmental issues has really been there for kind of as long as I can remember. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, yeah. And did they end up uh, identifying the actual like location of the PCBs? And, yeah. you know, like, was there enforcement? Like, what was the end of that story? Yeah, the, there was a huge cleanup run by the Environmental Protection Agency and some of the local state agencies as well. Um, and I think, I don't remember the exact timing, but I think anywhere from five to 10 years ago, I think the fish are now officially deemed clean and able to eat. So it's a, a really kind of wonderful end to the story. Wow. That is really fascinating. So we could talk about fish in Montana for a long time, I suspect, and that would be fascinating. But instead, we're going to talk about this recent paper that you wrote with co-authors. Again, the title of the paper is The Effects of Natural Disasters on Human Capital in the United States. 
Let's start with a couple of basics. I think when most of us think about natural disasters, we probably think about the effects that those disasters have on property, maybe the environment, if we think about wildfires and maybe human health. Um, but what is human capital and how, just like in a general sense, might human capital be affected by different types of natural disasters? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question and a good first question in some sense, because people, myself included, confusingly use the term human capital, I think, in a lot of different ways. So like one example, if you hear about human capital, it's often sometimes used as a way to kind of capture components of an individual's well-being that don't show up in the official economic statistics, like the country's GDP. That's actually not really how we're using the sense of human capital. We use kind of a more narrow definition that I think is best stated by uh, just this kind of wonderful economist uh, and actually the most recent Nobel Prize winner named Claudia Golden, who kind of in this definition says that human capital is just the stock of skills that the labor force possesses. So we're like especially going to focus on this paper on education, which you could think of as like the production of human capital. We know, as I said early, I think I'm mostly an education economist. And so I've read lots of papers that have talked about how this education process can be affected when either students or teachers experience this kind of large disruption in their lives. Of course, natural disasters are a huge disruption. And so that was really, I think, the motivation to start looking at this, thinking that it's worthwhile to study this kind of directly at what the effects of this big disruption caused by natural disasters has on the education process. Yeah, that's great. And, and this might be intuitive to people, but can you just like walk us through an example maybe of like the chain of events that leads a natural disaster to affect someone's educational attainment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fascinating question. And there's both, <laughs> I think, frustratingly, there's a lot of chain of events that could happen. And I think one thing that I will just say from the beginning is that we don't have a, you know, this paper is looking at the overall effect, not the particular mechanisms. But you could imagine that somebody is in community college and a natural disaster causes $2,000 of damage to their car, and so they have to take a second job out, and that causes them to drop out of college. That's like one plausible story. Um, it could be just a simple story of missing school that cancels school for a while for a fifth grader, and that causes the reduction in learning. There's a lot of different pathways, and I, as I kind of said, I think could study a lot more and hopefully people will study a lot more of like which of these pathways is driving the results. We're really looking at the big picture of kind of overall, what are the effects? Right. That's great. Yeah. I think that just, just having a couple examples helps us or at least helps me um, kind of think about the intuition here. So I want to ask you a question about your data um, briefly, um, but you know, we're not going to spend a ton of time on data, but can you just give us a, a flavor of the data you're using and how it allows you to try to answer this question of how disasters affect um, people's educational attainment. Yeah, so we didn't collect any data ourselves for this paper, but really kind of piggybacked on other researchers and used what's called secondary data or data that others have collected. We basically need two types of data, of course, like one data on natural disasters and one data on education outcomes. So for the disasters, we use a data set that consists of all 
presidential disaster declarations, which is this kind of formal declaration, um, that have occurred about over the last 20 odd years. There's actually a lot of these declarations, about 400 counties experience one of these every year. So we can be pretty confident that that captures, I think, the majority of the sizable disasters in the U.S. Very helpfully, there have been other researchers that have really used this data set, cleaned it up a bit, and provided estimates of how much property damage each of these disasters have caused. And so that's really the data set we're using to measure disasters. On the education side, you know, if you're a parent listening, you probably already know this, but students often take tests at the end of each year. So we use these test scores for students in grades three through eight. We use high school graduation measures and college attendance. All of these kind of bits of data sources end up getting reported to the Department of Education. And then there are kind of relatively well-known data sets that aggregate these kind of components into, so we're not kind of compromising students' confidentiality. There've been other researchers that have done a really good job of kind of cleaning these and making them available to researchers. And so we're using these kind of data sets to measure education outcomes. That's great. That makes a ton of sense. Um, so let's just kind of jump over the methods, which which are really interesting and, um, you know, would be great for a more technical podcast, but um, we'll let people check out the paper to um, to dig deep on the methods here and um, and jump over to the results. So can you just talk us through some of your high-level results in terms of how natural disasters affect uh, the learning outcomes that you're uh, looking at in these data? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you said we're kind of jumping past the methods, but I'll say, you know, pretty straightforward in the sense that really all we do is look what happens after a disaster relative to the year before the disaster. And so the effects we find, you know, as an example, we find that students' test scores in areas that were hit with a disaster tend to be lower in the year after a disaster relative to the year before the disaster. We also find evidence that kind of it hurt high school graduation in those areas, actually not of students who were seniors at the time the disaster hit who were kind of almost ready to graduate, but actually the students who were juniors at the time the disaster hit. And then we also find, as I kind of mentioned, pretty strong evidence that disasters also reduce college attendance in these areas. That's really interesting. And um, you say that you're measuring, you know, these these events sort of before and after the disaster, um, but you also talk a little bit about the persistency of the effects. Like, uh, how long they last. So so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what you find in terms of how well people are able to recover uh, after they have uh, experienced a natural disaster like this, or if the effects sort of persist over a long period of time. Yeah. So, you know, just as we could look kind of what happens in the year after disaster relative to the year before, we could look at what happens two years after a disaster or three years after a disaster. And we actually thought there was a pretty good chance that at least for test scores, we'd see this kind of temporary blip, and then it'd kind of go back to what it was before. We actually really see no evidence that things are temporary and that test scores or graduation rates or college attendance kind of increase two or three years afterwards. We can only look about five years post-disasters just based on our data, but we see no real evidence that things improve uh, over the course. So it does seem pretty persistent effects. Yeah. You know, that makes me wonder about um, COVID, actually. And I know we're, you know, in some ways, we're still in the COVID era. Um, and 
you know, in other ways, maybe we're a little bit beyond it. But I'm, but I'm curious if, if these results that you're finding, if they're consistent with what you might have seen in the literature. Again, I don't. I, this isn't my field, so I don't know if people have been doing studies on this. But um, I'm wondering if what you're finding might be consistent with the, you know, impacts to learning outcomes that students might have experienced in the aftermath of the lockdowns with COVID. Yeah. Uh, again, a really good question, and and I haven't done any research on this, but I know some of my RAND colleagues have. COVID is obviously a very different type of disaster than the one we're looking at, but I think you could certainly consider it a type of natural disaster. There are There's lots of evidence that COVID harmed learning outcomes across the board. And I think one thing that we can learn from that research that we don't talk about, but I think is a really important part, one of the big findings from the literature on how people kind of were affected by the pandemic is that there's lots of different disparities. There's lots of equity issues. And it's, you know, the really the the most kind of needy students who are the ones that were affected the most. I think one of the real limitations of our paper is that we don't really get in just based on what data we have. We don't get into these kind of equity considerations much at all. But I think, especially from COVID, that's a really important question because COVID did have these huge disparities. Yeah. And is that something that you're actively following up on in this work or that others might be following up on? It's something that I hope to follow up on. So if you're a, you know, IES grant reviewer out there, um, Daniel thinks <laughs> you should fund us or, you know, Rand is a soft money. So we need to get funding to do our research. And so we actually put in recently a big grant very much to try to look at these equity issues and think through other data sets that could allow us to answer that a little better. That's fascinating. Okay, well, you've got the resources radio stamp of approval on your grant application. I'm sure that's exactly yeah. what we need. <laughs> that that's what the reviewers are looking for, right there. Well, let me ask you one more question about about your paper, which is, um, you know, trying to compare in some ways the um, education outcomes that you are measuring with other outcomes from natural disasters that we might be more familiar with, like you know, billions of dollars in property damage or uh, I don't know, maybe lives lost um, from a hurricane or a wildfire. Um, how would you kind of put the magnitude of the effects you're seeing here in context with some of those other metrics we might be more familiar with? Yeah, again, a, a really, really good question. And I think first, I'll just say that, you know, even as an economist, I think I would argue that there's no real way to kind of perfectly compare the roof getting ripped off someone's house to somebody dropping out of college after a storm or having their test score reduced a bit. So, you know, I think we're not trying to put like this precise dollar value on everything because that is what we do as economists. I think instead the real goal is just to try to get a sense, as you said, try to get a sense of scale. Are these human capital costs that we see kind of big relative to the things that we can more easily measure and are more easily visible like property damage, or are they relatively small compared to these physical damages? And so we try to get at that by looking at what's called the net present value of earnings, where we're really trying to approximate the earnings loss due to reductions in the education outcomes that we see. So the thing we like about this measure is that it's comparable to the property damage in the sense that if somebody has $500 in property damage 
kind of in theory, you'd have to write them a $500 check to kind of make up for that damage. And similarly, if we say there's a $500 reduction in human capital, kind of in theory, you'd have to write them a $500 check to make up for that loss. And when we do that, when we try to quantify it in that way, we actually find that the magnitude of the damages to human capital are kind of, I would say, roughly on par with the damages to physical capital. So if a disaster causes like $1,000 in per person property damage, we find that kind of to a rough approximation, it also causes about $1,000 in human capital costs per person. I think one thing I want to note about that is, you know, property damage costs aren't the same across everybody in the county. Uh, so, you know, some people might have $1,000, some people might have $200 in property damage. In human capital costs, that's especially true. So in particular, this $1,000 cost per person that I kind of mentioned for a $1,000 property damage disaster, that is especially hits the students who are in elementary school, high school, and college. So if you want to focus especially on these kind of students, young adults, the per person cost, the per student cost is actually quite a bit higher than the kind of average property damage cost. That's really interesting. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, I'd love to ask you now to turn to policy implications. Um, you know, this again is is totally outside the stuff that I study. And so I'm curious if you could just, you know, give us a lay of the land of what some of the possible um, policy responses might be. And, you know, just like what you're hoping uh, policymakers are, are able to draw from your key findings. Yeah. So RAND, you know, is all about policy implications. And so it's something that I think a lot about in both this research and other research. And I think a a kind of frankly frustrating part of what I've done so far is that I don't really know what to do about it. So we've talked a little bit before, you know, I think, you know, tons of money goes into rebuilding the physical capital after a disaster, and very little goes in kind of explicitly to rebuilding the human capital. So I think in the long run, a kind of natural policy implication is that we should equalize those a little bit and provide more funding for rebuilding the human capital. But in the short run, I would say, you know, without a great sense of the mechanisms behind this reduction, as I said, there's lots of different ways it might be affecting things without a great sense of what's causing these. I don't think we know exactly how to rebuild human capital in the same way that, you know, I think at least in theory, we know how to rebuild a highway or a hospital. And I just don't think that's is obvious about how to rebuild human capital. You kind of mentioned COVID. I think COVID's a good example of that. There's a lot of money trying to go in to kind of improve education outcomes, and there's a lot of good work, and I think it's helping to some extent, but we don't have a kind of perfect answer of how to do it. So I don't think, you know, it's obvious that the policy implication right now is just spend a bunch more money on rebuilding the human capital. I think, again, maybe a plug for the IES reviewers on the grant. I think the the hope is to better understand what's causing these effects, and then we can maybe think about how to kind of remedy those. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I forgot to ask you when you first mentioned it, I don't actually know that acronym IES. What does that stand for? Sorry, I, you told not to use acronyms, and of course I did, but that is uh, <laughs> no that is the grant that, that the Department of Education runs for researchers. Okay, cool. So, Isaac, you just sort of alluded to this, but um, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit now about 
like what are the tools in the toolbox that exist that policymakers might consider if they you know observe this learning loss and they want to try to make up for it in some way compensate for it in some way um, can you just talk through some of the you know efforts that exist like what are the programs that people are trying out what are the lessons that are being learned if any to this date um, and how do you think they might be applied in the context of um, you know, recovering from disasters. And, and of course, I want to preface your answer by saying that obviously you're looking to do more research on this to have sort of more empirically grounded answers to this type of question. But I'm wondering if you can just give us a little bit of examples and intuition. Yeah, I mean, again, I hate to kind of keep coming back to more research, <laughs> but that is something else actually that we're trying to get funding to do a little bit. Anecdotally, it seems like there are programs that are kind of in place at various districts to try to kind of address what happens if there's a disaster, what, you know, what is the process for making sure students still get educated, potentially moving to an online program. One of the things that is both good and bad about the U.S. education system, it is very decentralized, right? So different districts are doing different things, potentially even different schools are doing different things. And that's actually one of the other things kind of on our research agenda is to try to document that a little bit more systematically to get a sense of what is out there now. Ideally, we can then combine that with some of the kind of empirical work to say, this is what seems like it's working. This is what seems like it's not working. Um, so very much something I'm interested in. But again, kind of frustratingly, I don't think I know the answer right now. That's interesting. I'm curious even if you can just tell us like what are what would be an example of a program that a school district might try to do or that a state might try to do to make up for these challenges? Would it be like summer school? You mentioned online learning. Are there other like just like what are the like actual activities that would be involved? Yeah, I mean again, kind of just anecdotally speaking, I think they're the exact things that you mentioned and, and kind of things that make sense that, you know, if what's if it's just reducing the number of days of school because everybody has to stay home for a while if that's a two or three day thing maybe doing summer school kind of adding on to the school year if it's a longer term again kind of it seems like most districts have in place something where they can shift to online learning if you know the school building itself has some damages done um so summer school after school programs, extending the school year, you know, the ability to get computers to students. I mean, we went through a lot of that with COVID of trying to shift to online. I think a lot of those are also in place for more kind of types of disasters like hurricanes or floods. Um, I will also say, you know, as far as I can tell, I mean, the college side of things is even, if anything, more decentralized where individual colleges are doing different things. And I don't have a great sense of what colleges are doing at all now to try to, you know, say a community college student, you know, again, has a financial hit because of a disaster and might end up taking a second job and that causes them to drop out. I'm not really aware of anything that's happening there. That's not to say that nothing is happening. I just don't know of it. And I think that's another thing that I think we should look at because a lot of the costs really do seem to come from the fact that it you know, people don't go to college at the rates they did without the disaster happening. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So Isaac, one last question before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is about climate change. And I'm sure people have been thinking about this during our conversation. You know, I think, again, I'm not a climate scientist, but my understanding is that the theory, you know, tells us that as climate change worsens, certain natural disasters like tropical storms, wildfires, and other extreme events are likely to become more intense and, and likely more damaging. Um, I think there's some actually debate about this, about whether the sort of empirical record to date tells us or like gives us the climate signal in natural disasters, but we don't need to get into that debate. Uh, I'm curious about how you think about climate change uh, and, and the results that you're finding in this paper. What are some of the things that you think about when you think about a changing climate and how they might exacerbate or not um, the educational outcomes that, that you and your co-authors look at? Yeah. So again, you know, like you, I'm not a climate scientist. And I think like you, I've been a bit confused of kind of reading the literature because again, you see both sides a little bit. That said, my understanding, again, like you, is that most of the evidence suggests that these disasters are going to increase in both frequency and kind of the size. And so my read of of that literature and our paper, I think if anything, really just emphasizes the fact that we have to get this right. We have to figure out how to mitigate some of these responses, maybe put things in place so that, you know, schools, students are more resilient. Um, and again, my understanding of the literature suggests that this is just going to keep happening more and more and more. And if we don't kind of have... Uh, procedures in place or figure out how to mitigate this, that's just going to be yet another channel through which climate change is going to really affect our lives and kind of reduce, even if you're just uh, focused on economic output, another channel through which it's going to affect kind of economic output as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it would be fascinating to talk about this in the context of the social cost of carbon, which many of my colleagues at RFF work on in great depth. Um, you could imagine trying to incorporate this sort of thing um, into the SEC, which at the moment I don't believe it is. But one of the other things that I take from your from your paper is that even setting aside climate change, right? Let's let's imagine these natural disasters don't get any worse. It's still a really big deal, um, and, and still incredibly disruptive and impactful on people's lives and, and the economy. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what you think about that. No, I think that's exactly right, and and I agree that I've thought a little bit about the social cost of carbon and kind of thinking about this in that context. Um, there's also some evidence, I will say, that disasters affect kind of long-term growth rates. And so this is another channel through which the education is one channel through which it could be affecting these long-term growth rates. And again, to the extent that climate change is going to affect disasters, that's another drag on the long-term growth, which is something I think we all should be a little concerned about. Yeah, for sure. Well, Isaac, um, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Um, I've been out of my depth for most of it, so I appreciate you um, sort of uh, keeping things straightforward so so that myself and, and our listeners can really understand the takeaways here. Um, I'd love to ask you now to recommend something that you think is really great. Um, it can be related to the environment or not. We're not all that picky. Um, so what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, a book I just read that I really, really liked is was called The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf. Um, 
I think a bestseller in, in kind of 2014 or 2015, but it's about Alexander von Humboldt, who was this kind of adventure scientist in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Um, it, you know, for one, it's just a great story, kind of learning about all of his, you know, adventures and, and findings. But I think it's also kind of a thought-provoking one in the sense that, you know, we talked, I guess, we kind of started talking about kind of my love of nature. And, you know, that kind of begs the question of like, what really is nature? And especially we mentioned I grew up in Montana and now live in Los Angeles. So that's kind of an especially pertinent question because nature is a little bit more subtle here, I think, than it is in Montana. And so I think I really both enjoyed just the story of that book, but also kind of thinking through how do we think about nature and kind of going back to one of the first people who really thought about that uh, in kind of the modern conception. Wow. Very cool. I had not heard about that book. That looks really, really interesting. Well, it's a great recommendation. And um, and again, a really fascinating paper. Thank you so much for, for writing it and for sharing it and for coming onto the show and help our listeners understand it. We really appreciate it. Isaac Hopper from The Ray Corporation. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.